For episode 5 of Reading Games, A Personal Critical Canon, we will be discussing AVB's The Tyranny of Choice, originally published in Game Ranks. Links to that essay and other relevant materials, along with a rough transcript of this episode, are available in the description. This article, which was pretty formative in my understanding of systems and what interactivity can and can't accomplish, is going to require a little bit of background. This is critic AVB's entry into an ongoing dialogue at the time. In some ways, it began with Raf Koster, another critic and designer, who made waves by claiming, in an article entitled Two Cultures and Games, that, quote, I like Anna Anthropy's work, but I also try to be clear-eyed about the fact that a lot of dysphoria could be built in PowerPoint and isn't a game. That's not a value judgment, and then parenthetically he edits, nor does it mean that, as a whole, it's not a game, and then end parenthetical. My value judgment of the piece as a work of expressive art is pretty high, end quote. The ensuing debate took a close look at the claim of what gets called a game, and how a classification that might appear value neutral on its face comes wrapped up in intense political baggage. The tyranny of choice brings one thread of that argument to the fore. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing for a few reasons. The first is that I don't think it's necessary to appreciate what's going on here. The second is a bit more complicated. So far in this podcast, we've talked multiple times about authorship, labor practices, and genre, among other things. It won't be a big component in this episode, but know that in the future we'll be adding preservation to this list of reoccurring topics. It'll come up in terms of both games themselves, but also of criticism. It's relevant right this moment because significant chunks of this dialogue have been lost to blog and website closures and the sands of Twitter. Hopefully that's enough background, which brings us to the article itself. The opening line is as good an introduction as any. Quote, I'm very interested in systems. End quote. This is what we'll be talking about. Systems. Initially, and mainly, in games, but not exclusively. AV then brings up some of the arguments made in Raff's blog post, A Letter to Lee. Written to critic and author Lee Alexander after she wrote a Twitter thread on the debate, AV starts by honing in on a point early in the letter, where Raff asks if, as AV paraphrases, quote, messing around with player agency really had a future as a design technique, end quote. AV's response to this question is in some ways the thesis statement of this article. She says, quote, I think the trick that these games use, that Dragon Cancer, Dysphoria, Brenda Romero's board game Train, games that appear to give choice but really don't, is actually the only trick we have. There are not some games that subvert player agency and others that grant it. Rather, all games, by nature of being games, by nature of being systems, inherently restrict player agency in the exact same ways. End quote. The bulk of the rest of this article will be expanding on what is meant by this statement, so I won't belabor any points here. I will say, somewhat confidently, that even when I first read it, I found the argument incredibly compelling. I take it in a similar way to my claim, in the first episode, that games can be boiled down to engines of dissociation, among other things. The primary way that they structure boredom is through systems. Mechanics, the things that happen when the player interacts with the game, primarily through the interface of the controller or keyboard, might be what makes games unique. And I say might intentionally, because I'm not sure that they are unique, or that identifying them as such is worthwhile. Systems are how the game interacts with itself, 
often but not always in relation to the mechanics. These are both provisional definitions, of course. I'm no scholar. But I think they make sense. And more importantly, I think they build toward broader claims. For now, though, let's set my thought on systems aside and let Avi take the floor. In continuing to respond to the letter, she says, quote, Coster implies that games are capable of creating dialogue with their systems. I believe games can only make statements. End quote. The operative phrase here is, with their systems. She then goes on to fully quote one of the questions asked about whether, quote, Choosing non-interactivity as the central defining characteristic effectively puts you in a broadcasting position, and therefore turns the games into monologue rather than dialogue. Her response, quote, What Coster chooses to define as interactivity here is choice. He believes that interactivity, as well as dialogue, are things that arise from giving players choice. Here's an abstract example of why I don't believe it. I, the designer, give the player a choice between two premises. It seems I'm offering the player the choice to participate in a dialogue, to vote yes or no. But I, the designer, got to choose what those choices were. I control the player's options because I control what their choices are. End quote. She goes on to boil it down even further. Quote, Though a video game may appear to contain a dialogue between two different viewpoints for the player to decide between, the entire terms of that dialogue are set by the designer, not the player. End quote. This is what she means by games can only make statements. Not that games are defined by things that make statements, or that better games make stronger statements. From a different angle, you might rephrase it as, games are designed. They have designers. Those designers make the game in a certain way, including all the choices available within the games. All choices available to the player through the mechanics, then, are choices stemming from the designer. They aren't choices, in other words. They're statements about the world. Either the world of the game or the world outside of the game, no matter the intention. In her words, quote, It may seem like a dialogue to offer the player two opposing questions, but it is in fact the opposite. By offering two opposing choices, you have made the claim, through your system, that only opposing binary choices exist in moral situations. Though a game with a good versus evil morality system appears to be a dialogue between the two points of view, it is actually a statement that the world is a morally definite one. End quote. I'm trying to hammer this point home for a few reasons. The first is that it's how the essay goes, and I like this essay. The second is that I think each of these quotes provides strong support for the argument itself. I'm not sure how many times you've heard that games are about player choice or agency or interactivity. I know I've heard it, implicitly and explicitly, ad nauseum. Taking a clear look at systems, the ways that games interact with themselves, according to my provisional and personal definition, cuts through that nausea. To this point, I see A.V. arguing that games may well be about player choice, insofar as games are things designed by designers for players. But taking a step back, what they're about isn't synonymous with how they actually function in the world. Designers can be as infatuated with providing options as they want to be, but that doesn't change how what they make functions. Putting it bluntly, A.V. writes, quote, A game with one choice is no different than a game with two choices, or a game with 10,000 million choices, because these choices function as part of a larger system, and a system cannot help but make claims. End quote. Relating this to the previous example is helpful. We'll imagine three games, each at the same point. The first has one choice. A non-player character is speaking to the player character. You, the player, has one option. Press the action button to advance the dialogue. Doing so triggers the mechanic that causes the systems to spin up, and the non-player character will then deliver the next line of dialogue to the player character. If the game has a system tallying good versus evil, then it will also take that interaction to tally up one side or the other, or neither, based on the game's own systems. In the next game, we have the same non-player character telling the same player character the same thing. 
This time, though, the player has two mechanics at their behest. First, they choose a response, and then they hit the action button to advance the dialogue. Let's say, to stick to the example of a morality system, that the non-player character is a daughter looking for her mother. The options might then be, for instance, to point that girl in her mother's direction, or to lie and tell the girl that her mother is dead. This duality is what A.V. means when she says that this system isn't a dialogue, but a statement about the moral definition of the world. You don't get to decide what the good choice is or the evil one. The game's systems only talk to themselves about that. The third game, then, presents the same scenario, except it has 10,000 million choices. I'll avoid trying to provide that many examples. It's safe to say that among these options, slightly more nuance is going to arise. You might end up pointing the girl to her mother for bad reasons or lying for good ones. With 10 billion choices to fill, the designer may even have to find ways for the player to be able to lie for bad reasons that produce a positive moral outcome, or to point the girl to her mother for good reasons that produce a negative moral outcome. No matter how Gordian the choices become, this exponential growth at the level of mechanics doesn't change the systems. If the system in question boils all mechanical input to good versus evil, the amount of mechanical possibilities does nothing to change that input into a dialogue rather than a statement. I think this is the clearest way to illustrate this point, but I'm also suspicious of how cleanly it comes out. But it's actually more complicated than some other possibilities. For instance, a game might have a combat system. Mechanically, you have your one-choice game. Press the square button to attack. Your two-choice game might have you push the square button or the triangle button to do two different types of attack. Your 10,000 million choice game might dedicate every button on the controller and a keyboard and every combination of those buttons and maybe some other things to do 10 billion different types of attack. None of those produce a dialogue with the game, though. Each mechanical input is sent to the systems to do with what they were programmed to do. The output is the same, a statement. Physical conflict can resolve problems. If you aren't quite convinced, let's argue one more quick hypothetical. There exist games in which dialogue is quite literally a mechanic. Online multiplayer games on computers often have systems which allow one player to type human words to another human player. These words go through the game's servers and come out on another player's computer. We can even assume the lightest touch possible. Massively multiplayer online role-playing games, for instance, often have nothing more than a text box in the user interface to mediate this conversation. Once one person says something and the person it was said to responds, dialogue is a game mechanic. The system facilitates the dialogue and mediates it, but it doesn't participate. In terms of the game, it boils it down. The game itself doesn't partake. It makes a statement. This world requires interaction between human beings. Even in those light-touch examples, for instance, that mediation might also say, and these human beings cannot curse at each other, represented by a language filter. Or they can't harass each other, represented by the powers granted by other discrete systems to moderators. Or they can't be made sure that they will feel safe because of an absence of these other safeguards. Systems aren't a dialogue. Back to the essay at hand, though. A.V. returns to Raph's letter to Lee to bring to bear her point. Quote, So to the other question Coster asks, almost rhetorically, isn't dialogue the best way to create empathy? I would have difficulty answering in the affirmative. Not because I don't think dialogue is a way to create empathy, but because dialogue requires a statement and a response. And systems are statements. Games can be fantastic statements to respond to, like any kind of art but they do not contain the mechanisms to respond to themselves. End quote. Here is where my provisional definitions of mechanics and systems become important. I said before the mechanics are the things that happen when the player interacts with the game, and the systems are how the game interacts with itself. This might look on its face to contradict AV's statements that games do not contain the mechanisms to respond to themselves, but I don't think it does. 
Because mechanics, whether they are dialogue options, combat choices, or typing into a box, aren't responses. They're the things that happen when you press a button. They're always already an aspect of the system, even as systems extend far beyond them. A statement that contains a response is still a monologue. Or, in Avi's words, quote, I think systems prevent dialogue by their very nature. After all, the designer has written the very rules of dialogue. How can I possibly have a dialogue if I don't agree with those rules in the first place? End quote. And then a bit later, quote, No matter what I do as a player, I will never be able to change the hard-coded rules in this game. But dialogue of a different sort is possible. Do films and books contain dialogues? The best ones, I think, certainly do, without a system, without choices, without mechanics. But it is always a dialogue between the creator and herself, not between a reader and the creator. End quote. Without diving too deep into it, I think this is a strong argument for why the way we talk about interactivity is bunk. If mechanics are pressing buttons to allow the game to react in ways defined by its systems, which are how the game talks to itself, then any real interaction with a game is fundamentally the same as the process of reading a book, listening to a song, or watching a movie. It's a matter of degrees rather than kind. Video games required interactivity is just paying attention amplified. With all this groundwork done, Avi then goes on to expand the scope of the argument. Before we get there, though, she gives one more example from another contemporaneous debate about a newly released video game. Quote, Bioshock Infinite allows the player the choice of being a violent bigot or taking up arms against racism. Is this a dialogue? Certainly not. Both choices enforce the same thesis. Racism is evil. I believe that it should be possible to provide many choices that provide depth and nuance, but even if such a feat is accomplished, it will still be a limited and specific vision, a single voice that speaks in many, perhaps quite contradictory ways, but never a dialogue. End quote. I want to admit here that I've been performing an elision. I've been doing it partially because I think the piece performs it as well, but it's too tied up in our previous discussions, especially on authorship and labor, to continue without commenting upon. To this point, I've been following A.V.'s lead in referring to a designer. We know, in fact, that almost all video games are made by a team of people. These teams can be made up of anywhere from one person and some contractors, or one person and some tools created by others, to a dozen horizontally organized individuals, to thousands of contributors from across the globe working in the interests of shareholders. Bioshock Infinite is a reminder of this because it performs the auteurist reduction of that last group to a designer, Ken Levine. But the reality is almost certainly that Infinite had many designers, that its systems were not produced as statements from on high, but in dialogues between people in different positions, and in choices made at each level of labor and management. This also does not fundamentally undermine her argument. The auteur has always been a useful fiction, one that pins a name to a piece of art in order to better understand that art. Referring to a designer does something similar. It regrounds the product in the labor of its creators. Whether that's one person or 10,000, it doesn't change the fact that what results is a text. It is readable as a unit, and with games becoming more service than product, as a palimpsest. The statements that are made by systems aren't necessarily from the mouths of Ken Levine or Tetsuya Mizuguchi or Chris Avalon. They're from the game, because it is ultimately the product of human endeavor. Now, to the broadening of the argument. This is a bit of a long one. Quote, Like Coster, I see games as systems. Here is where I lean differently. Rather than seeing those systems as avenues for choice and exploration and emergent behavior, I see those systems as inherently restrictive. To provide a choice is to exclude all other choices. To provide a way to win is to provide infinite other ways to lose. A system that values some choices and behaviors will necessarily devalue others. A system might offer all sorts of pleasant choices to some, 
but for other participants, there will be no choices that do not oppress or do violence to them. Certainly, struggle for meaning and value is possible in such a system. But that doesn't change the fact that a system can be an instrument of hate and violence. A system is not a dialogue. In fact, it can be an instrument that specifically removes the possibility for dialogue. Though thankfully, the opposite is also true. I've stopped talking about video games. This is starting to sound almost exactly like a discussion of how cultural and societal systems constrain human beings into binaries of sexuality and gender and race. Well, of course it is. And this is part of the reason why I find systems of all kinds so fascinating, beautiful, terrible, and worth talking about. The systems that govern game worlds are not unlike the systems that rule our everyday lives. End quote. Avi then goes on to say that this is why frameworks like social justice, feminism, and queer theory can offer useful insights into game design. They've been studying these systems at a societal level for longer than video games have existed. Specifically, quote, The rules of society are not inherently different from the rules of a game. Understand how human social, cultural, and political systems function, and you will understand how they function in games much better. End quote. This puts her earlier arguments about systems as statements into a different light. I've tried to supplement those arguments by talking about specific aspects of what is sometimes called gameplay, things like mechanics and interactivity. But similar to the elision of a designer for teams and individuals in a product, another elision is now taking place. Systems that don't have mechanics because they aren't part of video games are being said to be statements as well. For me, this is a fairly intuitive leap. So much so, in fact, that I have a hard time articulating exactly how it plays out. And given that this episode is already fairly long, and we'll be getting back to the subject matter in further episodes, I think it's fair to say I'll leave it here for now and get around to wrapping this thing up. Before we do, though, we need to look at two more quick quotes. First, in closing the argument that this article began with, A.V. says, quote, If Raph feels like games like Train, Dysphoria, and Howling Dogs are playing him, I must answer, every single game I have ever played feels like it's been playing me. I believe a game can have a dialogue with itself. I believe that as a reader or player, my personal response to struggling within a system or reading a book can certainly be the other side of that dialogue. But it is necessary that I express my response outside of a game, because within that game, I am ruled by your system. End quote. This is crucial to remember. There is a possibility of dialogue, but it is with games, not in them. The systems won't allow for that, but these kind of systems are siloed off into their respective games. They can be touched and then walked away from. They can be discussed in articles or podcasts or just talked about at home among friends. That is where the dialogue lies and what differentiates them from societal systems, which rise and change and fall, but are omnipresent when they exist. Which is where, I think, the study of games might feed back into those other disciplines. Feminism and queer theory have thought experiments and history to look at, but nothing is quite so clean as a small design system to see what statements it might make. And as per usual now, I want to end this with a quote from the essay. It's a conclusion, a reiteration of the thesis with the new information presented, wrapped in. I hope you'll find it as useful as I did, and continue to. Quote, I believe systems are statements. Not always restrictive or exploitative or hateful, but always statements. Statements about what choices are allowed. Statements about the limits of freedom. Statements about what categories exist, and what it means to belong to them. End quote. Thank you for listening to episode 5 of Reading Games, A Personal Critical Canon. We've been discussing Tyranny of Choice by AVB. Next time, we'll look at a detailed analysis of the Resident Evil video game series by Capcom, by Dan Burlew and Thomas Wilde. I'd like to thank Zanzan Zawavea for use of Yarnball for the intro and outro music. To find out more about Zan's music, go to patreon.com slash zzzv. 
I'm your host, B, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.